welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, Ting Magnath, Research Fellow here at CAD, will be interviewing Felipe Alfayate and Ariana Almeida, co-founders of the Timor-Leste-based NGO Empresa Diac. Ariane and Felipe just delivered a very passionate talk at CID describing the challenges behind creating and maintaining an award-winning NGO. Welcome, Felipe and Ariana. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for having us. Um, as I was telling you before, I'm really excited to be here. Um, I, you know, I spent a year living in Timor-Leste, and so I'm, I was able to see some of the incredible work that you're doing there, and I'm um, really excited to share it with everyone here. So I was wondering if you could kind of start by giving our listeners um, some background about Timor-Leste and kind of a general overview of the work that Empresa Diak does. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to, be sh- to share the work that we've been doing and also talk a little bit about Timor-Leste, which is the youngest and poorest country in Asia. The organization that we start is called Empresa Diak, which means good business. The, the the context to all of this is uh, in Timor. Timor was uh, after centuries of Portuguese colonization and two decades of Indonesian occupation, uh, the country became independent in 2002 uh, after a referendum in 99 that led to the destruction of the country. So it's a country that starts us from from this 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 heritage and the, the has huge potential potential from starting from scratch, but also has all the the wounds and all the problems of of start, starting anew and after such a violent uh, past. Um, development development is still low, it's around 47 out of 187, but there's an improvement uh, between 20-25% since uh, 10 years ago. The poverty rates are extremely high. 41% uh, the population live below the natural poverty line. Uh, the population is really young, so there's a huge potential to grow and do this uh, to get this demographic dividend, um, but it's also a huge concern because we need to find the jobs and, eco- uh, and the economy has to have provide uh, space for, the, for all these new uh, people that get into the to, to, to the market. The, the one of the biggest uh, concerns or issues that Timor has to face is the oil curse. Is uh, Timor is totally dependent on oil and gas revenues. Ninety percent of the the natural budget comes from oil and gas revenues, so there's a need to diversify uh, the economy. In Presidiac, in this context, context uh, uh, tries to help uh, and assist the, the, the vision for the country of a more diversified economy. So in Presidiac, as a good business, is, is, is pushing to the end of poverty by unleashing the, 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 the market forces, if you want to see. We want to include, having an inclusive market. Right now, after depend who's counting, with two billions to three billion, four billion dollars spent in aid in Timor, we can see that the development has not been inclusive. And there's a large percentage of the population that lives outside the market economy, and therefore they are not benefiting from all the infrastructure work, all the spending, every, all the social investments that have been carried out by the government and by social partners. So we want them to bring all these living in an informal economy to the market economy and make that bridge. We want to do it through innovation, to women economic uh, entrepreneurism, and uh, to help diversify the, 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 the economy. That's great. Um, you know, I've always been impressed by kind of the variety of the efforts that Empresa Diak is, is doing. Um, maybe you could 
talk more about, uh, maybe give us an example. You, you, you talked about uh, reviving uh, a clay pot uh, <laughs> industry <laughs> in, in, a, in a village, in an island, uh, right off of, of Dili. And so I was wondering, I mean, I found that uh, story very fascinating. So, The story of the program of turning traditions into livelihoods is, uh, is an inspiring one for us, and one that we have uh, a lot of pride in because it represents well the work that we do, I think. Um, and it's the story of um, two old ladies that live far in the mountains of uh, one of the poorest regions in Timor that ha held this knowledge of, of clay making, clay, clay pots that are not made anywhere else in Timor. And when, and when Philippe actually was working with the communities there to understand what were the potential business opportunities that we could support the communities there to develop, we were finding ourselves in a bit of a, a situation where we couldn't find a lot of, of opportunities. People didn't have, they were living in subsistence, subsistence economy, there were not a lot of, of business opportunities. Uh, and so we've, someone mentioned these old ladies that lived in the mountains that did this old clay pots. And, and, and Philippe went there and they were almost 100. They are still alive, impressively. And they were not involved in the community. No one knew how to do those pots. They were not done for, for years and years. And so we thought that that could be a potential for the tourist markets, for... Uh, reviving the traditions and, and, and linking that with building the identity and heritage in Timor. And so we started a group with, started with 10 women, it's now over 30 in the community that started learning from those two old ladies, which had incredible uh, results. So the first one was that the old ladies passed that tradition that didn't die with them, uh, and that was very precious. The second thing was that the community saw that group of women with completely different eyes. They got a level of respect and inclusiveness in the community that they didn't feel before. And then we started, so we, we trained them how to improve the product and we started buying it from them, giving access to market, doing all the branding and the storytelling. And so now those pots are being sold and they see that as well and they get an income of that. And one of them said something interesting. She said, um, it's not just the income, it's the dignity. And, and we found that very, very uh, strong because often in these projects of economic empowerment and, and social businesses, uh, a lot of the focus is put on the income. You know, how much money are people taking home? Um, and this is a good example of how these programs have to be seen in a more holistic way because it's about how, you, how people feel empowered and how they are able to then uh, use this strength to to do this path out of poverty which is so so difficult and so and so long term that's great um, some of the themes I've been hearing uh, across from your, your many projects are kind of this economic empowerment um, including people in the market um, churning traditions and the livelihoods so I was wondering how is Impresidiac different from a traditional charity or aid project? Well, I think uh, we started always from the, the, the point of view that um, we are about building opportunities, not charity. We actually wanted to become start as a, a social enterprise, then we decided to be an NGO, 
but we wanted to and we work from a point of view of f developing people so that they are empowered and this would go to the market so we don't don't want them uh, to don't to offer a fish to them we want them to 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 teach them and help them to get the fish scale the fish clean the fish put a fish in a nice package take it on time to the supermarket get the money invest in more in more boats get more people hired etc etc so we want to go and help them through that process of integrating with the market it's not that charity doesn't have a role to play yes but in terms of market development and market inclusiveness we think that the the approach has to be um, different and um, I don't know if you want to I would say that uh, one of the things that distinguished us when when we started was that we were focusing on innovation So even at the time, doing talking about social enterprises in Timor was just that in itself was innovative because everyone was focusing on education and health, and, and rightly so. But we we had a vision that it would be people were, had the power within them to be able to go further, and I think that's where that's where we made important decisions, which were very painful because they took time and a lot of. Uh, failures and mistakes to get there, but the idea of talking and, and, and seeing the people who work with as participants and not as beneficiaries uh, and including them in the process of developing activities and programs and, and listening to what they were saying, I think is something that distinguishes from a lot of the organizations we, we've encountered. Uh, and being able to be more concerned about the impact that we have than about writing a good report at the end of it. And so being able to file, acknowledge filing, learn from it, uh, and finding people, donors and partners and sponsors that are willing to do that uh, journey with us. So I think those are things that... Yeah. I, I would just add in terms of culture, we both come from the private sector. Uh, that's where we started. And uh, one of the things that we started is this culture, culture of success to date. Success to date means success only. And this is uh, something we're always saying to our staff, and our staff is always saying back to us and to the, to the communities is, we can do it, just get it done, let's, let's move on. So bringing this more uh, go-for-it attitude from the private sector of achieving results, looking at two targets, and being more, the way you manage the project be more private sector linked instead of, not linked, but uh, in a more inspired by what is uh, the, the managerial practice in the private sector, I think is something that puts us a little bit different uh, different from other NGOs. And also the way you, you build and try to design the projects, in the sense that we are always looking to the market. Timor, very difficult market, in the sense that most of the transactions are in the formal economy, and the transactions that are, not, are in the formal economy, or the formal markets, there's not data, not a lot of data about it. So we spend a lot of time just getting information, going to the markets, talking with people, trying to understand where people are buying, why, doing profiles, uh, doing market assessments, PPPs, etc., etc. So we, we, we are look, always looking to the market and what people are buying. So I think that's a very different angle than what uh, Zeliano was saying. Then we talk with people and try to see them as, as potential entrepreneurs, uh, not as beneficiaries, some that will join us in this business opportunity. The last thing I would say in terms of economic development that we do that is different, uh, particularly in Timor, is that we share the risk. Uh, I think that's uh, with the community. So, um, yes, it's a key point because the example we were talking about before um, regarding the turning traditions into livelihoods program 
where we bought the pots and then we gave access to markets uh, with the objective that one day, you know, maybe that community can have access to markets uh, independently. But the truth is now they live in a far removed mountain and we didn't go there and say, well, you know, you can do these pots and then you have a new skill and you should use it because it's good. We said, you can do this, we'll help you to do this and we'll buy it from you. And eventually, a few months later, we said, well, we won't buy those that have no quality, that don't follow these standards of quality. You know how to do them. You've been trained. You can do better. So let's work on that. And, you know, we, we gave them positive incentives to improve. And now they're at a level where it's a good product and they can do it by themselves with support from us on continuing to develop the products and, and continuing to, to bring changes uh, in the way that they work as a group, etc. But but that invest that that risk that we shared with them was key because and 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 we find that often the groups and the communities that's one of the things that they point out is that we didn't go there to give them information. We went there to start something with them, and they felt that we by sharing this risk by purchasing the products by looking for access in the market. Uh, by doing the research that they are not able to do at this moment and the linkages that they are not able to, to achieve, then that meant that we were together doing yeah. this. And that, and that is a big, big change. And, and the assumption that uh, people are not necessarily in interest in making money. That was a big failure that uh, of, uh, for a period of time we thought that people's main concern was to make money. And, uh, and then we didn't spend enough time listening to the situation and what was happening. And uh, even our staff, which is a, a m amazing staff and has been starting from field office and be growing and growing and we, we help them and they help us and we have this relationship. Even them, it was not e easy for them to tell us what was the main drivers in rural Timor. And uh, we learned that uh, if you want to bring people from the subsistence economy or the informal economy to the formal economy, you need to make sure that the values that, 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 that there's an issue of values as well because reputation, credibility, a co local cohesiveness and other things are more important so than just making a profit or starting a venture. And therefore, if you are too disruptive, communities will not be able to, to, follow, to follow you. So that's a, a, I think that approach of looking at the value, although you're talking about business, it's simply just about the numbers, but it's actually a lot about values and, uh, as well. Um, I'd like to shift now to kind of the... the the beginnings of Empresa Diac, because I'm sure there are many listeners out there who are interested in what it takes to build a successful NGO. Um, they might have an idea, uh, but don't know how to implement it. So let's hear more about your story. How did your idea for Empresa Diac start, and what was the initial process like for turning that idea into an organization? So the start was living in Timor and experiencing level of poverty and lack of opportunity and lack of access that we had never seen before. Being raised in Portugal, living in London, traveling the world, uh, we had encountered poverty but we had never experienced it in a day-to-day -day basis and, and, and it was striking for us how so much investment was being done in development of Timor uh, and how so many people were, were being left out. And so that was the driving force. So when Philippe was working with the government for the first year and a half, two years we were living in Timor, I was working with international NGOs. 
Uh, and that came as a pattern everywhere we went in different sectors and in different, in different areas of the country. Uh, and so for us, Simprosidiac started as, a, as an answer to challenge that status quo and, and, and think about how can you make these people part of the process and not just sitting recipients of whatever project or idea someone else has in a headquarters somewhere in Asia or in the United States of a project that will change their lives. Um, so that's where I feel it starts. I think we mentioned before that we thought we were going to do a social enterprise. Uh, we were very motivated by the idea that, you know, you can, you can use the power of business to change lives. And that was a, was a key force. At the moment, that was a very, very odd idea in Timor. Uh, I don't think any of the donors we were talking to responded to the world to the word social business or social enterprise. Everyone would look at us like, "Oh, you're either a business or you're yes, a charity." That, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was so that was the first. I think the first step was to understand what we wanted to do and how we could do it in in the, the context we were. That would be one of my first advices if someone someone is planning on starting a venture would be to to understand where, where you are and, and, and have a passion and, and, and understand who are your friends, who are the people that understand and talk the same language and be able to adapt and listen to what people are saying. So that, that was the first. Yes, I, w I would add that if I could go back, I probably wouldn't go back, but if <laughs> I could go back, I think one of the things that uh, I would force myself to, that, to do would be to waste more time trying to understand the reality that you're trying to change. Sometimes you come with great ideas that are actually great, or things that you have read, that you thought, or that you've seen in other countries, and you see a need and you want to address that, and you sometimes rush to action too soon, and I think we did that. So Impresidiac started just with the two of you, and um, you were mentioning that just when you were kind of explaining your idea, people weren't uh, exactly receptive. Um, and so I'm wondering, what was the first success you had that made you realize that, you know, hey, this could actually work? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't know that if there's like this moment where you think, ah, no, it can work. I think the support from um, the President Hamzorta, yes. Nobel Peace Laureate, uh, that uh, was willing at least to say to us, you are looking into something that people should be looking into, and this is important. Um, provides a lot of energy to, to move forward. So finding a champion, and he was an amazing, he still is a supporter of, a, of, a, of our work and our team's work. Um, and that was, a, for us, was a, a, a moment, oh, okay, we, we must be doing something wrong. Uh, right. Not, right, <laughs> yeah, if you have a Nobel Peace Prize winner exactly. uh, championing exactly. your work, you must be exactly. on the well, right path. That was, that, was, that was good. But in terms of community, I think the energy, for me, I think mm -hmm. it's a very personal question because um, people feel it mom different moments. For me, it was the, 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 the eagerness that, um, uh, that uh, although the first project that we did was not a success, which is it was a dry fish project. We learned a lot from it, and most important, it was the way that people re react to the ideas when we're presenting it. So not so much the dry fish itself, because it becomes a very difficult product to, to market, but the way they, they, they understand our concept of we're going to share this, this is a partnership, and the way people are so so excited and thinking, oh, this is 
is highly relevant for me. Mm -hmm. And the way they react when I said, we're not going to give you money. We're going to work with the partnership. We're not going to just to give you things. And then they still decide to move on. Uh, although then there was a lot of challenges in the way, but just this initial reaction was so was so powerful that uh, for me it was an indication that I'm not sure if you're doing is that 100% right, but it seems that we are in the right path. And, and I think and I think that then got complemented over time with donors from agencies that for us in the beginning were totally unattainable, USAID or Miseria, which is one of our main donors, an organization from Germany that supports our work and trusts our, our work. And they are um, great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and who have projects all over the world yeah. uh, and that sat down with us and, and listened to what we were saying and said, yes, we want to support that. And we don't want to support that for one year or two. We want to be your partners. And so we expect us to work together for the next 10 years. And that is a moment for me where, where I thought, okay, there is some, some hope that this is a right path. Um, you touched briefly on the topic of failure. Um, <laughs> it's not something that everyone always likes to talk about, but I, I mean, maybe for some listeners who are um, eager in starting their own NGO, it could be helpful. What were some challenges that you faced as you were starting your organization, either expected or unexpected? I think some, some of the challenges that we were not expecting involved the development scene. The ecosystem for us was very surprising. Uh, how competitive it was. I think there's this uh, myth that development work is all about kind-hearted people you know, that work together as one. And, and, and then you, you start working in this area and you think, well, this is really competitive. And that was surprising for us. Um, and also then how little innovation there was in this sector. And I think that was probably the thing that was more striking was that people were not investing on learning new things. No one really wanted to talk about failures. Uh, there was a status quo that, that was prevalent. And, and I think that was a big, big challenge. And then a second one that also linked with that was the idea that you were supposed, no one really wanted to, to invest in a startup. So we used our personal funding to do that. All the research and development in the first years was done by our unpaid work or by our own funds. Because every time you went to talk to, to a donor, potential donor, they wanted big numbers and great reports and nice photos. And we were saying, well, we're starting and we need to test this idea and we need to see how it works. And maybe it's going to be tested in a community with 100 people. And that never seemed to be enough. And so I think that that challenge of, of keeping honest and, and truthful to, to what our purpose was growing, because obviously then, you know, it was good to have more donors and more money to do what we wanted to do and what we felt was important. But still keeping that idea of if, that, if it doesn't have an impact, we have to be able to say what went wrong and to learn from it. And, and the people that work with us at all levels, from the communities to the staff to the donors, we all have to be able to, to do this on the same page. That's great. Um, just as a last question, I'm wondering, is there any other advice you would have for anyone who would like to set up their own NGO or social <laughs> enterprise now that you're kind of looking back on your experience so far? 
I think um, passion needs to be part of it because this is going to require a lot of commitment and a lot of work and it will be really challenging times where you'll be challenging yourself and the decisions that you've made. So if you don't have a passion, either for the, the issue or the community that you're working with or um, the idea, but you need to feel really personally committed. Uh, otherwise, at, at some point, there's so much pressure that you're just going to, 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 to let it go. So, and that's, that's an important thing, uh, the, the, the passion element. Uh, yeah, with that one only, is define what success means for you. Um, we was probably one of the main struggles we had throughout the years uh, was to determine what success meant because often we are putting the barrier too high uh, and not, not being able to appreciate the many achievements that you're getting along the way. And so, you know, measuring impact, all of those things are really important and they're part of what makes a great organization. Great. Ariana and Philippe, obrigado, Barak. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the CID Speaker Series and for sharing your story. Um, we wish you lots of more success in the future. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.